So with, with code, I, fi I find the best problem solving time is when I'm asleep. So if I, if I go to bed with a problem, I won't think about it. Uh, but in the morning, uh, I may not have thought about it even by the time I get to the computer, but I'll just start typing. I'll put my hands on the keyboard and the solution's there. I don't know where it came from. Somehow my subconscious has worked through it while I'm asleep. And I, I think that is paint. super common. That happens to yeah. me all the time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, your brain is in its most like plastic state or whatever, right? When you're sleeping. Or alone. the shower. And the, <laughs> taking a shower will do it too. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But I feel like using the brute force of your consciousness, your conscious mind to solve a problem is sometimes not the best way. And sometimes um, the letting your subconscious just work through it while you're not focusing on it is often the problem solver and then the hands just follow so and and it's kind of the same thing with music that i find as well welcome to the mr bill podcast i'm anand harsh editor-in-chief of the unstock.com bill's manager and personal intro guy We've got double the guests on this week's episode. Christian Findlay is a software developer and produces music as Syncretia. Rocky Latka is also a developer and the CTO at Magenic and is the creator of the open source CSLA.net development framework. He's also an author, so he's a hell of a lot smarter than me. So I'll get to these guys as quickly as possible and shut my dumb ass up. Thanks to everyone who's been rating the show and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts and other assorted podcatchers. It really helps people find the show. Please join the Patreon to get early access to episodes, bonus content, and full video of every podcast. We really appreciate everyone who supports the show that way. Got some more show announcements. Just this week, we announced Kill Bill at the Mish in Northern Colorado with Resonant Language, Navigators, and Sort of Vague. That show is already halfway sold out, so I jump on tickets with the quickness. There's also the Unz Festival, Infrasound, and then Red Rocks with Ganja White Knight all the way in November. These show announcements will be stacking up, so I'll have plenty more for you soon, as well as a big music announcement. Finally, head over to MrBillsTunes.com to sign up to become a hardcore Abletoneer. Lots of cool changes happening to the site, so make sure you're up to speed. All right, enjoy Bill's chat with Christian Findlay and Rocky Latka. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Cool. All right. Well, I'm also recording, so we're going. Sick. Well, yeah. Thanks for thanks for doing this. I'm pretty stoked to talk about software with you guys. I haven't had any. Well, I've had I think maybe like one or two developers on this podcast so far, but it's mostly just been musicians. Uh, for the first time yesterday, I had a a, bio, a microbiologist on here, and I, that conversation was just like way out of my wheelhouse. Um, is this guy who only eats croissants named Brad Marshall. Um, and his whole theory is that uh, saturated fats are the, like the way to go and unsaturated fats are bullshit. And he has like a bunch of, you know, theories and data to back all this up and studies and whatnot. And 
um but yeah he 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 himself has like gone on this croissant diet where he replaces <clears throat> all of the butter yeah all of the unsaturated fats or whatever that were in croissants with steric acid which is like this really incredibly high saturated fatty acid and um he managed to lose a ton of weight just eating croissants which is pretty crazy i mean i i could definitely eat croissants every day <laughs> it wouldn't hurt yeah so this guy is a uh, He's a microbiologist that like um, got his degree at Cornell University, plus also a chef who runs a restaurant. <laughs> so he's kind of like the perfect guy, I think, to do this sort of shit. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, if you have to make your own, that's um, right. Yeah, so I guess uh, before we get too deep into the weeds with everything, um, maybe you guys should introduce yourself just so the listener base kind of knows who you are and, and what's up. Cool. Do you want to go first? Sure. I'm Rocky Lutka. I'm the uh, CTO for a technology consulting company called Magenic. Uh, I'm also an open source creator, and I've been involved uh, in using open source since probably, well, before it was called open source, back in the late 80s and early 90s when it was freeware and shareware. Uh, and uh, then I got involved in uh, creating open source in the mid to late 90s and have been creating and managing an open source project for the Microsoft uh, development platform uh, ever since. So for uh, over 23 years at this point. I've actually, I've actually used some of your software in the past. And um, yeah, I've, I've got a software development background in the Microsoft space for the last 20 years or so as well. Um, but my background has been less open source and more just working for commercial companies. And over the last couple of years, I've been getting more and more into open source and just seeing some of the issues around open source and seeing how funding is a problem for open source. And um, from, you know, from talking to you, Bill, quite a bit, I've seen that you've managed to overcome a lot of the issues that the open source community is still kind of grappling with. And that's why I reached out to Rocky and you to have a chat because I think that, you know, there's so many things that going to cross over there between music and the software industry. Uh, I think there's lots of lessons to be learned from the music industry, to be honest. So, Yeah, totally. Well, before we go any further, we should probably, um, <clears throat> maybe one of you guys could have a shot at explaining what open source is, just in case anyone is sort of like confused about the, you know, uh, terminology, um, just to, so we haven't even sort of ground on what we're actually talking about. Because, you know, open source to one person can probably mean something slightly different at this stage. That's for sure, Bill. Uh, the definition of open source, well, number one, has evolved over time, but is also, uh, for some people, very tied up in uh, uh, social uh, kind of global ideology about how the world should work and how people should interact. Um, that's all the way across the spectrum to uh, open source is just uh, a licensing and distribution model. And, and so um, it, it's really, in, at least in the software world, hard to pin down without uh, you know, kind of ticking off one or all of those groups. Um, but if you really get down to it, the way I think about it is that if you are creating some sort of content, uh, in, in my case, software, and you license it such that other people can use it uh, without having to pay you and you make the source for your content available in some means that is realistic to achieve. 
And that's changed, right? When I got involved, it was before the internet. Nowadays, if your source, your content is not open on the internet, you don't count, right? Uh, back then, it was a whole different thing. It's like, hey, can you uh, email or, you know, well, not even email, can you mail me uh, a floppy disk or a, or a CD? <laughs> right, people um, would just like go to conferences and trade their wares on Yeah, absolutely <laughs> right. Um, I used to get all of my good stuff back in that time period on magnetic tape, like the stuff you see in old, you know, movies. <laughs> right, like reels or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, I think that's really, it comes down to um, some sort of what's called open licensing, and then also making it available for people to have access. That's like the bare minimum. Then from there, you can build on and say, well, maybe open source also means that I accept contributions from other people to my content. All right, so so I'm I'm creating something, but if you want to contribute some code to it or or whatever, um, you know that there should be a means to do that, and and then from there you kind of get more and more involved up to uh, copyleft licenses, which are um, like I said at the beginning, kind of this idea that we should literally change the world, um, and that uh, information should be free, um, and free is in speech. Uh, yeah, this is this, you know, as opposed to free is in beer, um, you know, where, where it's all about, you know, ownership of ownership of information is bad. <laughs> right. What, 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 what do you mean by free is in beer versus free is in speech? Well, it's an, it's an old phrasing to try and tease apart the idea that most open source is what's, what's considered free is in beer. Like you can walk up to um, an open source repository and take the source code um, or, or source content and just go do stuff with it. And it is licensed under usually a relatively low, uh, low restriction, right? So you can often do anything you want or, or almost anything you want with that code. And, and it's free, you don't have to pay money. So that's free as in beer. Right. But then this more, uh, kind of uh, alternate view is that it's free as in speech. Like I should be able to express my content and you should be able to take my content and alter it. And the idea, for example, that if I put some music out um, that somebody can't just take my music and use it as part of their YouTube video or their TikTok, that they should be able to do that without ever compensating anybody because content should be free. And not, so not only free is in beer, but also free is in speech, right? Gotcha. Okay. I think the really important key to all that is it's a collaborative endeavor. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because... I, I mean, I, I think honestly, and I say this all the time, is that um, the reason the software industry has taken off so quick in comparison, I think, to other industries is because uh, people have had this sort of open source view um, and, you know, people have just allowed each other to collaborate in this crazy efficient way through GitHub and whatnot. And there's sort of, um, you know, you always see that saying like standing on the shoulders of giants to like, you know, get to the next step of things. And I feel like people in the software community, it's like they've just created this big totem pole of standing on each other's shoulders, like very quickly. Whereas in the music industry up until recently, everyone was sort of like harboring their tricks for themselves and like no one wanted to share that sort of information. And it's only really up until recently where, musicians have realized that they kind of have to share that information and all the offcuts of, of their production 
sessions and all all of that to uh, even you know make a career out of it at this point. And and you can see that with you and Tom Tom Cosm, um, with what you guys have done. You know, I've seen an increase in the skill level of the music, you know, production scene. You know, people have learned from what you guys do and it just becomes this situation where everybody gets better. The level is just raised because of the level of sharing of information and the open sourcing of right. music. But think, sorry, I was going to say, but think of the um, level of increase of production in software. It's like a hundredfold that of music. Hmm. Mm. Would you say that as well, Rocky? Or well, I don't. Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I appreciate music a great deal. In fact, I'm wearing my uh, Queensrÿche shirt as we're uh, talking. I'm, I'm a avid. I go to concerts, festivals. I, I'm, I'm an avid follower of music, um, but I'm not a musician, and so I have. I, I can't speak to that as much. You know, like in terms of sharing. Uh, within that context, although both of my kids are musicians, so I guess there's that. But yeah, I think you know it is true that in the software industry, there's a large segment. I think it's yeah, you, know, you can't generalize completely, but there is a large segment of people, including myself, that um, have built their careers on the shoulders of giants and then have chosen to pay it forward by um, trying to. Uh, contribute back into the, uh, you know, and I, I always use the term industry, but that's not actually accurate. I, I don't choose to contribute to help the quote unquote industry because, you know, that means in most people's minds, I would be contributing to, you know, make the rich people richer. Um, I'm contributing back into the software development community is maybe a better way to put it. Uh, early in my career, I, was you know back to those magnetic tape reels um you know i i was able to um shine early in my career within my you know just corporate employment set settings because i had access to freeware and shareware that uh we leveraged to just fantastic you know do things that at the time amazed everybody else and you know some of that was my contribution but a lot of it was me using tools that other people had created right and so i think bill's absolutely correct in the software world that that mentality you know and not for everybody but that mentality for a lot of us is carried forward and there still is this big community of people that do teeny little things that are useful and really big things that are useful um, and you know just put that out there to make the world a better place I right. think that's a really yeah. good way of looking at it. Yeah, I, I'd say that's absolutely true. Um, the The software industry would be nowhere without the work of open source uh, contributors all of the way. And the thing is, you, you can't do as much in a small company or a, even a large organization as you can with a huge pool of people getting together. Um, when you're working on proprietary software, which is the opposite of open source, uh, you're only a small number of people. There's only a handful of people working on, on something like that. And other people don't get the benefit of that. And so when you're working with three or four other people, you're not exposed to hundreds or thousands of other people that might have ideas about what to do with that, how to improve it, what to build on it. And it's, it's a lot like Wikipedia. Now, Wikipedia is another example of, of open sourcing information. You know, when you've got the exposure to all those other people, 
you're going to end up with something that's better over the over the long run. And in my opinion, the, the kind of the idea of the proprietary model is kind of broken because you're, you're only ever going to get a, the perspective of a small group of people working on that. And it never seems to get outside, you know, into the into the realms of, you know, where open source infrastructure is at. And I think, Would you say I think that that still part. applies on a larger scale with companies like Apple and Google and stuff because they're making some proprietary stuff, especially like Apple, right? And um, <clears throat> but they they employ what like a fucking a million people or something. So it's like, yeah, yeah. is that you know at that stage there is that maybe just as good in terms a- of how much actually. Well, actually, Microsoft is really going through a stage now where they have fully realized that they can't do it by themselves and that they need the open source community to be able to build some of the infrastructure. They know that a lot of the really great infrastructure in their ecosystem is actually built by just hobbyists, just people who just build bits and pieces in their spare time. And often they've tried to you know, buy those pieces of infrastructure or to recreate them inside Microsoft and things like that. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't, but you can't brute force your way into, into building good software. Um, it often just takes a really smart person who just you know, catches onto an idea and spends a weekend or you know, a year or however long it takes to build a piece of infrastructure. And then that becomes a standard. And so many of the standards that we use now are from just a person who's sitting in their bedroom by themselves creating creating something and um apple on the other hand is not uh, from what i understand is not as into open source as microsoft right now um but there is a good contrast there because apple does do most of its stuff proprietary and there is a difference um in how they approach things uh but you know I'm, i'm not sure how do you feel about apple rocky yeah i think it's (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I've been doing this a long time and um, have, you know, so Microsoft used to be where Apple is now, where Microsoft was very closed source proprietary, um, it, in fact, famous for being anti open source. And, uh, and this includes the time frame when I was building open source using the Microsoft platform, but Microsoft itself was anti open source. And they've certainly changed in the last 10 years to truly just embrace open source in in so many ways and become a champion of open source. And Apple is still very much in that proprietary space, although even they've got some chinks in their armor. They've got a programming language called Swift, which is open source-ish. They still develop it proprietary but then when every time they release a version they open source the uh, snapshot of that new version so technically that counts as open source but it's kind of at the you know the 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 least uh you know the the bottom level necessary to play um but but i also think to that broader question there's room i I think for both and uh and i say this because i've built my career uh, kind of with a foot in each world where, yes, I spend a lot of my time building and and maintaining open source, and I have spent my entire career building enterprise software or leading groups of people or, or, you know, working as now an executive at a company, that that's what we do is we build proprietary software for enterprises. And yeah, that software for the most part is so specialized 
to a specific business need for a company, you know, it, 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 it's almost like there's at least three different categories here, right? There's there's operating systems like Windows or, or Mac OS or whatever, um, and, and a whole bunch of related tools around that. And then there are libraries like uh, like mine or, or you know, uh, like Angular and React and things that just almost everybody uses that are open source. And then there's software that's written and a lot of these projects are many, many millions of dollars that get spent to uh, create the software to manage a shop floor in a manufacturing setting or uh, to manage inventory in a big warehouse. And maybe you could argue that those should be open source, but I think you know, the companies that are investing you know, millions of dollars are doing it for their competitive advantage. And... Uh, you know, the software is a byproduct or a tool for them, right? It's not the end goal. The end goal is to be more efficient at whatever their business does. But they have no motivation. In fact, they have an anti-motivation to say, oh, you know, if, I'm, if I make my inventory management software uh, public to the world, then all my competitors will be just as efficient as me at my warehouse management. Right, that that's counterproductive to me. <laughs> right. <clears throat> um, so I feel like we should probably talk about David A. Moon in this conversation at some point, right? Like he seems like an important figure in the open source world. Okay, so he's the guy who uh created Emacs, but he also apparently was like a pretty big um advocate of free free software and open source software. And as far as I know, he was the one who perhaps uh, created GPL licenses or something like that. Let's see. Look at well, GPL on. definitely is, when I mentioned earlier that copy left concept, which um, when, when I was much younger, always, it, and frankly, even today, tweaks my, yeah, kind of the, the uh, teenager college kid brain in me because it's like, oh, instead of you know copyright, it's copyleft, and um, yeah, and I guess I don't know um, about Moon, but Richard Stallman uh, certainly is a, a key player in the pop, you know, making this popular, and uh, perhaps they they work together, uh, you know, or I don't know, but. Uh, yeah, GPL is one of the licenses that exists with the intent of changing the world as we know it. Um, yeah, it and it gets applied to software, but in its broader sense, the idea of using a license that uh, the, the term is viral. So uh, the idea is that if I release my software using the GPL and you use my software to build your software, then your your software also has to be released using the GPL, right? Like any babies of that software also have to be free. Yeah, yeah and, you, you're right. It was yeah. Richard Stallman that I was thinking of, not David Moon. I guess David Moon made Emacs, and then Richard Stallman made GNU Emacs. So that is, yeah. Well, GNU is uh, this weird. Back in the '80s and '90s, a, a lot of us, well. There was not very much diversity in software back at that time of, of any sort and and not just in terms of like gender or or uh, you know, race or whatever but in terms of it was pretty much all people that uh 
understand that if I say 42, that's a, that's, there's an inherent joke around 42. And if I make references to, uh, you know, I cannot change the laws of physics. Everybody knows it's Star Trek. And, you know, basically it was a geek culture that was very, very small and narrow. And, um, so everybody kind of had the same train of thought around the way the, I don't know, puns and whatever else. So, uh, GNU stands for GNU's not Unix. And it's a, it's, it's what's called a recursive term. It's, it's uber, uber geeky is what I'm getting at. Um, right, the, right, the world right. is much more diverse and fun now than it was back then. But I got to say back then it was fun too. Cause I, you know, if you, if you played D and D and had absorbed Lord of the Rings and, uh, had read, um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, and, and if, you know, oh, and watch Star Trek, the original, uh, you you were pretty much all set to live in the in the computer world. <laughs> nice, yeah. So um, I mean, maybe we should uh, touch more on GPL licenses because that seems like a thing that probably most open software, open source software has in it, right? That's actually not true um, because the the open source world at least has bifurcated, um, if not maybe even more. But uh, there there are there's a contingent of folks that do open source that strongly believe in copyleft and the GPL and viral licensing. And uh, then there's another group, which I suspect these days is far, far, far larger, that go for much more permissive non-viral licenses. And the most common there are is probably the MIT license, which pretty much says, as long as you don't sue me, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> That's um, what I use, and, yeah. And, uh, and the Apache license, which is a little more restrictive. Um, and, and there, there's a whole bunch of them, to be honest. But uh, yeah, the, the most common ones tend to be MIT, Apache, and GPL. And the thing with MIT, I think the main difference is that if someone takes my code uh, and uses it for whatever reason they want to use it, they're allowed to use that in a commercial way. They can go and sell that software and make make money from it. And that actually has happened to me. So people have taken my code, used it and made money from it. And I didn't make money. <laughs> and this right, is, I, I think is, is one of the sore points for, for that particular license. And this is where I think it gets a bit controversial for a lot of people, I think. Right. But if you like, say for instance, um, the software that you made was like accounting software or something like that, and they went and used it and they sold it and then all of a sudden, you know, some rich firm or company is like doing their taxes with it and it like fucks it up royally and costs them a shitload of money and then they just get sued. Um, at least that doesn't come back on you then. Yeah, so that, that's one of the key things about any of these licenses is that there's no uh, guarantee or warranty. So what you get is what you get. If something doesn't work, if it destroys something or it does some damage to something, you are not liable for, for that. Everybody has to responsibly use the code and test it for the purpose that they they want to use it for um but i i think um you know in the older versions of the licenses as you were talking about rocky i think the idea was that somebody if somebody took my code they couldn't go and make the kind of money that i would want to make off it right and i think i think this is still something that's a little bit funny when when we talk about open source wouldn't you say well, it's definitely a philosophy. It's different philosophical views of how things should work. 
So if you buy into the idea of GPL and copyleft, that's, that's why I always phrase it, that, that those licenses, that, that movement is an effort to literally change the fabric of society. They're just trying to do it through software. But the idea is that, hey, I created something cool and I'm giving it to you as long as you use it to create something cool that's also free and unencumbered other than that anybody that uses your stuff has to make it free. And the goal is to virally change the fabric of society. And I'm not sure that's good or bad. I, I you know, I, I try to stay out of that. Um, but then there's this whole other world, which is we want to do open source. I don't want to get sued. I want people to be able to use my software to do cool things, even in a commercial setting. And, and then there's a crossover. There are some uh, open source projects that use the GPL as a, what's called a poison pill license. So they release their open source using GPL, and then they have a proprietary closed source license. So if a uh, company or government or whoever comes and says, hey, this is awesome, but I want to use it to create something you know, commercial, then I'm like, ah, yeah, well, I, I will do that for you. I will sell you a, a commercial license, and now, now I've made my money. Uh, right. and, and the purest in the open source world look at that as being very disingenuous, of course, because it's, you know, that's why it's called poison pill. <laughs> so Christian, when, when you're saying um, uh, somebody with your with the MIT licenses would make money that you wouldn't want to make off off that code, do you essentially mean that like they're using it in some software that you just find unethical or like boring or? No, no. Um, so I do crypto stuff um, and I, I work with hardware wallets uh, like Trezor and Ledger. And so I have a bunch of libraries that allow you to talk to those devices. And um, someone contacted me out of the blue and said, oh, I'm working for a proprietary company. Um, they're paying me and uh, I've taken your code and now I'm improving on it. And I said, okay, well, that, that's cool. But wouldn't you like to contribute that back to the ecosystem, back to my libraries, you know, um, go back to the GitHub page put your changes into my code so that everybody gets the benefit of, of that work. And they said, no, 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 this is a proprietary business. They're making money off this. And I said, well, okay, that's, that's a bit unfair. Um, you know, you're using something that was there supposed to be for the community. Um, if I would like to make money from that in a consulting way, you know, if somebody, if a business came to me and said, okay, uh, we like this, the work that you've done. Could you, could you do this for us uh, in our proprietary software? So that, that could be a revenue stream um, for me. You know, like as, as a business, I could set up a revenue stream where I actually you know, tailor the libraries for them, for their, for their business or whatever. That's one way that I could get money from it. But instead, uh, whatever they're doing with that code, they're doing that in a proprietary way, tucked away, um, and you know they're, they're going to make money off it and I'm, I'm not against them making money um but i would appreciate it if they would you know contribute back to the library at least and it doesn't necessarily mean paying for it but it could be just you know putting their bug fixes into the library and things like that and this and this is one of the issues and i think a lot of people in the open source community get touchy about this because this happens and there's no way to really know 
on what scale it's happening as well. It could be happening a lot and you don't know. You don't know what's going right, on. This, like most companies aren't going to like come and contact you like this company did, right? It was strange because I don't know why this guy contacted me. I mean, um, you know, like he was asking for help and it's like, well, you know, if you were contributing back to the community, I would be more than happy to help, but I'm not going to help somebody who's doing this off in secret um, for somewhere, you know, without giving back to the community, you know? <laughs> Wait, so this guy was like, I've taken your code that's open source and free. I don't yeah. plan to do any work on it that benefits you in any way. And I don't plan to give you any money for this. And I plan to make money off it myself. That's right. But could you please help yes. me with this problem? Exactly, exactly. And that's, that's, and that's the, the one thing- that, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the one thing that just kind of goes right against the spirit of, of why people do open source in the first place. You know, you're doing it to help the community. Um, and if bin businesses can build on it, that's, that's great. But like, you know, show some, uh, contribute back in some way. And it doesn't, you know, that, if that business is making money, they've got resources that can actually contribute back to the library and put bug fixes in or make, suggestions or anything like that but that's not what happened in this case and i'm sure you've you've experienced this rocky like even if you don't know about it i'm sure this would have happened right i've experienced several variations of what you're talking about over the years and uh, sometimes it's it can be quite frustrating um, a lot of times people have uh, come back and asked for uh for help and and uh you know offered to hire me to do you know provide that help and I, and I do think that is, in, at least in my mind, when it, when you get into this world, that if you care about revenue, and, and you should, um, you know, you should care about somehow getting some, I, I use the word revenue, that's not right. You, you should care about getting some tangible reward. Like some compensation for your time, basically. Yeah, and, and it might be emotional. Uh, you know, I'm right. not even <laughs> saying it has to be money, right? Um, but... Yeah, there has to be, um, and and I recommend that because, yeah, I know people that get into open source because they're like, oh, this will be other younger, whatever, this will be fun, it'll be cool, and and it is, um, until maybe you have kids or you have a house or um, you start thinking about retirement, and then you're like, oh man, you know, I'm putting all this time into this project, and I'm shorting my kids or my spouse, or I could be making money that would go toward retirement or, you know, that, I mean, basically real life intrudes on all of us at some point. And yeah. so I have, I've always looked at it that if you're going, to, if you're going into open source for the long haul, um, you know, like, like in my case, you know, closing in on 25 years that uh, there ha you have to, you better be getting something out of it. And and it doesn't have to be huge. I mean, you know, or it might, it depends on you. I mean, if you want to get rich, then I'm sure there are ways to do that. And if you just want to have a, a nice augment to your uh, income, yeah. so like in my case, I chose to do it by creating, uh, working for a consulting company that acts essentially like a patron, um, you know, like literally an old style patronage or maybe a, a, a more contemporary uh, way of thinking about it is kind of like NASCAR or Formula One or other sporting events where, um, uh, you know, people wear a patch or, or a badge for their sponsor, right? It, it's kind of like that. Just imagining you like sitting at your computer it's... coding, wearing like a jersey that says like 
Tecron or Chevron. Or yeah, yeah, right, right, right. It's and and I that's I have I, you know, my my employer Magenic has been a patron um, in that capacity for twenty years now, um, and so in exchange for me mentioning their name occasionally, then uh, yeah, they give me a whole bunch of time to be working on this. So that's tangible, right? And then on top of that, um, I speak at conferences, I write books, um, you know, and, and I do other things that generate revenue. Um, and you know, they don't make me rich. You know, it's not like I'm uh, you know living high on some you know uh, tropical island somewhere. But uh, you know, it, it has been worth it to me in conjunction with um, a lot of uh, what I think of as as emotional uh, or. Uh, or le- I don't know, less tangible. Yeah, you know, I have people that that come up to me occasionally and say, "Hey, you know, I built my career based on your your books," or you know, or you know, I've, I I you know used your framework and we were able to create this just amazing piece of software and and uh, you know did some cool you know things that made either my life or the world a better place. And I I get personal reward out of that that um, I count as being you know worthy. <sighs> usually worthy enough to offset what Christian's talking about, where every now and then it's like, hey, did you know that somebody is re, you know, trying to resell CSLA um, you know, in, in uh, China or, or, or France? But that happened both times. And I'm like, oh, really? You know, that, that sucks, <laughs> right? Um, you have to I kind guess... of accept that. It's just mm. part of it. Yeah, I guess well, I could... or you use one of the, the you know one of the more strict licenses that blocks that, mm. right? But then all those licenses block usage of your um, you know your content for other things too, and so you're you know you're harming. No matter what you do, you end up harming some of the good people to uh, you know try and uh, block the bad people, and even at that, when you go to block the bad people with a license. That's only as good as your ability to hire lawyers. Yeah, yeah. If you so, don't, if you can't afford a good lawyer, you're not going to be able to take them to court. So there's nothing we can really do. That's right. So, what are the most common ways um, that people are making money in the open source community currently? Because I mean, I assume there's probably like a huge sector of people who are like pretty young, potentially like living in cheap housing situations or, you know, living in share houses or living with their parents still. And they're just like making shit all the time and uploading it to GitHub. Right. Then I'm sure there's like, um, this other huge community of people like you guys who, who are like, you know, well into, uh, your lives and, you know, have houses and have families and all that shit who like obviously have to make money. So what, what is like the way that, that, um, people in, in that situation, such as yourselves, uh, make money in doing open source stuff? Actually, it's kind of got a lot of crossover with what you do, Bill. Um, one of the things that's become really popular now is courses. So people will have open source software and all kinds of different bits and pieces that they do, but um, courses and learning are a really big thing now. Um, so writing and developing video courses for whatever it is that you want to teach that's that's a way to make make money um so if you want to be an open source developer and you want to support yourself as a as a freelancer it's generally about the side gigs that you do you don't generally make as much money from just developing the software it's about building a a presence and then being able to um you know it could even be writing books as well a lot of people write books 
Um, it could be um, one-on-one tutoring as well. There's all kinds of things that people do to get money. Um, and these days, some of the things that are opening up are um, sponsorship programs like GitHub sponsors. So what happens is you set up a profile and you say, okay, um, would you like to pay me $5 a month? And it's just like Patreon. So you can log on and you can see a profile and then you can sponsor that person for five bucks or 10 bucks a month. So these things are sort of happening and, and there's lots of different things that are developing, but I don't feel like there's as much infrastructure as the music world because things like Bandcamp have been around for, for quite a while. Um, I don't know if you've come across Bandcamp, Rocky, but I feel like Bandcamp would be something that's very good for the, the software industry. It's So I think Bandcamp kind of like came off the back of that Radiohead album, right? Like Radiohead did that album where they were like, pay whatever you want. And then it's pay Bandcamp, what you feel. Yeah, exactly. And then Bandcamp showed up and essentially it's just a distributor. It's the same as like iTunes or, you know, whatever, Apple Music or whatever, a place where you can go and just buy albums, right? But it just has this option to pay what you want and the artist has the option to enable that or not. So, you know, I could put an album up on Bandcamp and I could say this is 10 bucks and that's that. You can pay more more than 10 if you want, but you have to pay a 10 minimum. And then the other option that I can check when I'm uploading is uh, this is like 10 bucks, uh, but you can also just pay whatever you want. Like if you want to pay zero, that's fine. Um, and then there's a third option, which is uh, pay what you want. But if you choose to pay zero, you have to give me your email address. So there's like this kind of other option too, which is like, you know, like you're saying, there's different um, ways that you can get paid. Some of it is emotional, some of it is monetary. Um, and, a, and a third way is uh, getting the person to allow you to contact them whenever you feel like it. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I think that's, that's something that's missing from the software world. Um, we don't have a system like that really that I, I know about where, it, where you have a pay what you feel like sort of model. What would that look like for software? Um, well, yeah, it's not so clear to me because the software software largely ends up divided into three groups. There are tools, there are libraries, um, and um, I suppose frameworks, which are kind of like Uber libraries. Um, so you could almost see maybe where you'd be able to uh, you know, buy tools, but because the source code is um, available, um, there's nothing to stop me from downloading and just building it. So it's you know, difficult it, to be open source and to directly commercialize content. And, th- and this is where I would think, you know, my, my son put, they put their uh, first album up on Bandcamp and uh, I think they made tens of dollars, you know, um, but, but it's proprietary, right? That's, they didn't open source their music. And yeah, there's a whole different licensing structure that we haven't actually touched on in this conversation and probably don't want to dive into too deep, but called Creative Commons. Oh yeah, I know about this one. And Creative Commons is is an open source license mentality, but it's geared toward uh, things like printed word or music or right more, much more content related. And maybe this is the fundamental distinction here um, is that software open source software is almost always used to create other software. 
Um, the exception maybe being something like Linux, where um, you can run it as a, you know, just use it as an end user, or maybe Audacity, I guess, um, you know, things like that. But, um, you know, but music is an example. The idea of, of open sourcing music, I, you know, seems a little, a little bit odd, right? It's like, well, I'm going to take my music and I'm going to put it up on a um, open website somewhere, with with and you can just, well it's it's I guess it's Bandcamp with the price minimum price set to zero. But wouldn't well, open source I, I, music be not on on top of giving away your your wave file? You would also have to give away your project file as well, meaning that like people could open it and fork it and pull it apart and do whatever they want and like essentially remix the track without your your permission and and then also have to make that remix free. So that Rocky, would be more similar, yes. Yeah. This is something that Bill does, and this is I think this is you know where the crossover is because well the thing is though is i i don't give away my project files for free though i make people true. pay for them but yeah and and also they can't just do whatever they want with them they have to there's a thing on my website that just says just contact me if you're going to do anything with it and we'll talk about it but it's not just not just the actual project files itself but it's also the the process and the stuff that you know that you go through that you teach people how to do this or that and for me open sourcing music is about is about that it's about the process that you go through to get to the result that you get to because i've always felt like music has been an opaque process um you know up until very recently you would hear any any artist that you like and it could be a you know a rock musician or whatever a big part of what they do is the production process and it's it's not just playing the tunes but it's being able to get the sound that that artist gets and you don't see the producer standing up on YouTube, stepping you through the process of, okay, this is, this is how we got this sound. This is the, the, the kind of recording, uh, module that we use to, to, you know, to get this particular sound. This is the kind of mic you don't really, you've never really seen that, but when, when you watch the stuff that you do, you can actually see the process. And I feel that's a big part of open source because when you look at somebody else's software, you can see the process that they've been through. You can see where they've come from because Git yeah, it's has, like all commented out and stuff like that. Well, Git has history. Everything about Git is, is, um, history. Uh, there's like an audit trail of how the software got to the point it's at. It's not just about what it is now. It's where it came from and why it got to that point. You can see why it ended up that way. And I think that's a real parallel with, with what you do is like when most people hear a song, they don't know the process. They don't know how it got to that point. Um, but with the way that you've documented the music that you you've documented, you can see how it got to that that point. And then somebody else can say, "Well, okay, well, I I I see how that happened, and now I can reuse not just not just this, but the idea, the techniques, everything about that." And that can only make people better musicians, better producers. And it's the same thing with software. And I think that's that's one of the really big things about open source, and it's a really g great open thing about the open way that you produce music as well right one thing i wanted to um, chat about a little bit which is like maybe a little bit of a tangent off that is like we're talking about the value of uh you know different kind of sort of for lack of a better word payments that you can get for your work um or compensation and you know we, we've talked about like monetary we've talked about emotional um but I think uh, something that exists in the music industry a lot is like sensationalism where like the bigger you seem as a name or whatever in people's minds, 
uh like the more you can get paid for like say doing a show or something or the more you can get uh the more you can charge for an album or the the more people will come to like a ticketed live stream in the times of covid and so on and so forth <clears throat> and i think uh like uh, a lot of the time people give away a free tune but it'll be like free in the sense that you have to like click a follow me on spotify or follow me on soundcloud button to get the download so it's like marketed as free but it's like really what you're doing is like bolstering up a number on their profile. So then all of a sudden they have like, you know, 200,000 followers on SoundCloud or whatever. And then all of a sudden when people look at that, they go like, oh shit, like XYZ artist is like pretty big. And like now in my mind, I put him on this like certain pedestal with all these other artists of that value or whatever. And, um, and then there's like this kind of peripheral value that gets created there from other work that they then do in the future. So it's like the same work that you do uh, in the future after like bolstering up all these numbers is then just worth more money as you continue to go on. And I feel like there's not maybe a parallel for that in software so much. No, I think there is actually. Um, I don't think there's a direct parallel, um, but most of the people, I think you might be a different case, Rocky, because you've had sponsorship, um, but in a lot of ways, what people tend to do is they might have some libraries or software that are pretty popular, but then they use that to create a name for themselves. So they, the, a good parallel is Twitter. So people will develop more and more Twitter followers. So, um, you know, people are always trying to get, you know, it could, or it could be Facebook, it could be anything. And then they use that to be able to advertise something else like, like a, a course or a book or or, or pay for something in the same way that someone would pay for a download of, of music. So there is definitely something going on there because I have heard of people that, that make a living year to year by doing that kind of thing. So they, they will have an open source repository, but then they also have a YouTube channel and um, they become really popular on, on YouTube. So they have lots of subscribers and then those, those subscribers will pay via patreon or or something like that and um so there is a parallel and i think that's a double-edged sword because on one hand um it's good because you can get paid you know basically on the karma of what you have been doing which is great but then the other problem is that it becomes a situation where you have to be a marketing person all the time for yourself you have to market your work and it's not enough to just uh, develop this great software that everybody loves, you also have to become a celebrity and being that celebrity, then you can cash in on what, on what you've actually, you know, created. So that, that's kind of a double-edged sword. And I think that's something that a lot of people are funny about. I don't know. How do you feel about that, Rocky? I think you summarized it very, very well. Um, I, I would actually say that there is a direct analogy or, or you know, one one for one. Um, and there are people, like you said, that that do that. I've done that um, with, you know, not such that I've become, uh, you know, self-employed doing it, but um, all of my books and my speaking and my open source, uh, it, you know, they all build on each other. Um, all of them have a marketing angle. And so you're absolutely right that that if you go down that path um, and you want it to actually work, uh, everything you do has to be thought of in terms of of marketing, and uh, you know it it's just the way it is. And and in building your own name recognition and your own personal brand, and 
I think the the prime in my mind the distinction here between the music world and the software world is just one of of magnitude or scale, um, because musicians uh, touch potentially millions of people around the world, and you know as a software person that that lives and breathes in the Microsoft space, my my the limit of my fame <laughs> is uh, pretty much the uh, the Microsoft developer space, which. Yeah, whatever that is, if it's, you know, 7 million people on the planet. But if I'm a musician, you know, my the limit of my potential audience is, you know, 7.5 billion people. So, mm. um, well, sort of, right? Yeah. Because, like, um, you also have to think that with software, um, a lot of stuff in software is, like, a lot more essential than music. Like, for instance, sending an email or uh, you know, being able to connect with, you know, old relatives being able to accept payments like through a bank gateway or through paypal being able to order food that can come to your door like all of this is like kind of essential whereas like music is not necessarily uh and you can almost put like a tangible value on like how much should you charge in taxes and fees on a pizza delivery or something like that with a software gateway that you made to do such a thing versus how much should you charge for a you know two minute piece of nylon string guitar music you know it's like one of them seems to have maybe a slightly easier calculatable value than the other i feel like maybe although the examples you listed for the most part um are are commercial software Right. That that is almost certainly built on top of open source, right? <laughs> that this, this is just the world we live in. Is that it's almost impossible to create software today that doesn't sit on top of open source. And um, but you're you know to your point, Bill, all of those examples of ordering a car, ordering food, you know, whatever it might be that I'm using an app on my phone, um, that's all proprietary commercial stuff. And the odds that any of that uh, ever trickled down into the open source creator world is near zero. So what right? is the... But in terms of, of uh, you know, money or emotional work or even recognition, I mean, just none of it comes down. Right. So what what's the future then for open source? Or like, do you think it's a thing that'll eventually die out and then all open source people will eventually just be sort of, you know, uh, bought up by commercial companies and and just paid a wage or do you think there's just always going to be a, a whole group of people who are like no fuck that i'm gonna stay open source forever and just continue building you know these kind of things or like what what do you think is going to happen well, you in know, this space you know you'd asked this question earlier um about how what is the most common way that people make money in open source <clears throat> and i don't have specific like researcher numbers but i would pretty much bet you that the most common way that people make money is the they are the team at Microsoft that builds .NET. They're the team at Apple that builds Swift. They're the team at Google uh, or Facebook that create Angular and React. Um, and you know, these people uh, are teams of people that are paid a full-time living wage with benefits to create open source software for uh, corporate and you could call them a corporate patron, but you know, like, why? Why is it that um, you know, Microsoft open sources and creates and maintains .NET and has a huge team of people? It's all open source. They give it away for free, right? But they're doing it to build other 
um, revenue streams that are in the billions of dollars, right? They're, they're saying, hey, if you use our stuff, then maybe you'll use our cloud and you'll use our operating system and you'll use our office suite, you know, Word and Excel. Um, and so basically we're trying to, you know, we're, it's a marketing avenue, right? But that I think is the the biggest thing, and so yeah, I think it is possible that open source will will gravitate toward that. You can see it in the big, the big ones, right? Like Java.net, um, yeah, and so forth. But then there is still all this little stuff that people do. Um, and, and I say little, I mean like you know, Audacity or GIMP or some of these tools, um, yeah, you know, are, are definitely not little, right? And and they compete with. Uh, big commercial uh, tooling that's out there. And so there's some other motivation. Um, some of it might be money. Some of it might be um, just frustration with the uh, corporate world. And, and I think we come back in some cases for certain people to, I want the world to be different than it is today. And one way to do that is to escape capitalism, communism, everything else. And I'm just going to, you know, write, write software or create music or whatever it is and uh you know not worry about it how does audacity make money i'm just looking at their website now i can't like really figure out how this company is still going right it's, it's a fan i don't know either it's a fantastic question there's another one signal um i wonder how they make money as well i'm guessing it's through through funding um yeah, I'm and always suspicious of that. Like VC funding makes me suspicious because venture capitalists ultimately want their money back, right? Yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> so at the at the end of the day, um, you got to Twitter faced this right. Um, they, early Twitter was so so fun, so open, you know. And, and at some point, their their venture capitalists are like, "Yeah, so how are, how are we getting our money back?" Yeah, you know, not, not just our money, but we want ten times what we put in. Um, well, it looks like you can yeah. donate, so maybe that's yeah. how they're making their money. An awful lot of open source have donate buttons, and that comes back, I think, to what Christian was talking about with like software development tools. You can be a Patreon sponsor or a GitHub sponsor. Um, yeah, I've, I've got a bunch of people that sponsor CSLA through GitHub, um, so that is one of my revenue streams, but it's not remotely big enough to you know by itself justify you know so that's why i also sell training videos and books right that's um is it um like bad practice or a bad look or whatever to make open source software like say signal for instance that just has some limitations to it like for instance every 10 minutes uh it'll like turn off for five minutes or something like that and you know some some annoying shit like that to to just get people to maybe make a donation to unlock the full features or you know is that something that that gets considered a lot when uh developing and and distributing open source i think you would call that the freemium model right um yeah I but see that and is that I different think, to open source yeah it is and that's mm -hmm. where because if it's worse signal and maybe it is, I don't know, but we're signal open source. And then they added in some inconvenience like that and said, hey, pay us money to unlock it. What would happen is somebody would just go to GitHub, fork the signal source code, take out that annoyance and package, you know, because it's free, right? So then they would package it back up and put sig you know, signal free out on the um, Apple store and signal would die because 
what which yeah. one would you pick right yeah. and signal is open source so yeah it just wouldn't wouldn't work yeah and that's that's kind of the point is the community gets to decide what goes into the software so how many people do you think are going out of their way to go to that donate page on on the signal website and actually give them money versus because like i mean one of the things like with bandcamp for instance is like to actually get the music you need to like go through that donate button process like it's put in front of your face if you want to download that album right whereas signal it's like you download it it's fine it never asks you for any money and that donate page i've been using signal for like a year and that's the first time i've ever seen it so yeah and the funny thing i don't the donate button i think is not not that many people it's not really that effective but what i think should happen in the software world is even in the app stores so you could have an app that's open source that has a pay what you feel like option so google or apple or microsoft would collect money on your behalf uh take their cut and then pay you i think I think that's one option that could happen in the future. I, I don't know how that sits with the philosophy of open source, um, but it would give people at least the acknowledgement that says, okay, well, look, you're taking this software for free. Um, would you consider putting some money towards it? Perhaps. I, I don't know. What do, what do you think about that, Rocky? Yeah, I think it's an extension of the patron model, like you know, Patreon or GitHub sponsors. And... I don't think it violates any, um, you know, philosophy um, around open source, and and I don't think I think it's a fine idea, um, but it is in in my experience to to directly answer Bill's question, it's a vanishingly small number of people that financially contribute back into any open source that they choose to to use. This to to me is one of the more uh, kind of annoying myths around open source people are like oh well linux must be more secure than than windows or or the mac os because linux is open source and you know millions of people look at the source code well that's not true right you know people people grab linux distros and install them on on servers or desktops all the time almost nobody actually looks at the source code and of that small number of people that look at the source code um, a very much smaller number even report bugs, which is a huge way to help open sources. All you got to do is report bugs, right? Um, but but even that rarely happens. And then of the people that report bugs, a very tiny percentage are willing to contribute to help fix the bugs, right? And And it's somewhere in that very tiny percentage of people that might actually consider putting money into it as well. And And I don't mean to sound bitter or whatever, because I, I signed up for this, I, you know, but, but I do think it's, it's, um, you know, people that idolize the concept of open source clearly haven't been doing it for very long and don't realize that, that, um, you know, out of a hundred percent, you know, like, like maybe 3% are going to interact with you at all and less than 1% are going to contribute in any tangible way. Oh yeah, for sure. So I think the um, the Patreon model, the way that I view it in the music community, at least, is like uh, you put out your music, which you know, I guess in this, in this parallel like would be your software. Um, and then really what people are paying for on Patreon is like the offcuts or like the extra bits or like the shit that didn't like make the release. or you know, it's like they kind of want all that that extra shit just because they're a fan and they like 
they don't care about the fact that you like you know didn't finish that whip and get it mastered properly they still want to hear it right because they're a fan it's like i guess yeah off cuts is the best way to put it they want all the all the peripheral exterior crap that like didn't make your that didn't make your album or didn't make your latest podcast or like whatever like they just want all that stuff so um like what would be the equivalent model there in software because i mean i assume like the thing with software is it's kind of zero sum right it either works or it does not whereas with music it's kind of like you you have a piece of music that you think was good enough to go on the album and then you have a bunch of other crap that didn't make it on that still works and it's fine it's just you didn't think it was good enough for the album but it's not like you can't you can't like run it like you came with a broken piece of software or whatever so what's what's the equivalent there interesting thing i'd never really thought about it that way i mean you you could upload bits and pieces of source code that that isn't that was never turned into software or or libraries that are hanging around you certainly could do that but it's a bit hard to get people to even dive into your source code unless they've got a strong reason to do it in the first place so yeah it'd be a bit hard to find that kind of equivalent i would say i don't i don't think there is that that kind of equivalent i'm struggling to think of it as well maybe a loose equivalent is that there are some developers, um, friends of mine, some of them that have gotten into live streaming on Twitch as they code. Yeah, this is this and is another common thing. Yeah, per- performance coding. I, I don't even know what you'd call it, right? But um, and and they get people that that tune in uh, to their Twitch streams just to banter uh, with them as they're coding and. Uh, I guess maybe that's similar. <laughs> yeah. You you do this, Bill, right? You you Twitch. I do this while I'm writing music, yeah. But I would say that's that's different to the Patreon again, because like like you said, it's kind of like just banter and performance writing and stuff. Like I'm just sit- sitting there working on music, and people are sort of half there to watch me work on music and see how like what my latest techniques are for sound design and composition and stuff. And, and the other half of the reason they're there is just to talk, right? And like just to hang out and feel like they're having some sort of you know, social interaction, um, which I think is slightly different to the Patreon thing, where you're sort of paywalling a bunch of stuff that you didn't feel like was good enough for the Twitch stream or the album or the anything. It's just like literally random shit that's sitting on my hard drive that I had, had no other use for other than, hey, you're behind the paywall. Do you want to see this shit? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I've toyed. Yeah, that, that's something. Not, that... not with that exact thing, but over the years, I've toyed with the idea of uh, putting content. Uh, yeah, because I do sell things like books and videos and whatnot, but um, but toyed with the idea of setting up a paywall and saying, hey, if you if you pay um, a monthly fee, like a subscription fee, you gain access to um, documentation or or other you know it, this would be like instead of writing a book, would be to write all the documentation as a website and say, hey, you want access to the docs, pay for it, right? Um, I've never actually gone down that road because there's a whole level of infrastructure necessary to, uh, you know, run a subscription service and set up the paywall. And it, that's never interested me to figure that out. I'd rather write a book. <laughs> yeah, I feel like books probably have, uh, I guess, like a longer shelf life slash more replay value, I guess, is the way to say it. Like, you know, I think I'm... You know, like it's more it's more useful to to make an album than it is to make a single in the long run i think because you know the album's going to have more realism value it's going to be a more valuable piece of content in the long run versus like maybe 
you know, a single or a you know, small amount of content, which is just sort of like a quick fix of attention, really. Yeah, that's a nice analogy. I like that a lot. There's more investment in a book. Um, <laughs> sorry to say it, but people's attention spans have actually gotten a bit shorter over over time people want information really quickly and so people look to uh courses on udemy uh and plural site which are really great ways to serve up serve up content uh, but back say 10 15 years ago books were the primary way to learn about a technology um you would go to a bookstore and you would buy a thick book and you would read it from cover to cover Whereas these days, that's not happening as much. But I feel like if you do go to the effort of reading a book from cover to cover, you're making a kind of investment that says, okay, well, I'm going to learn this in a really detailed way from cover to cover. So you're more likely, I think, to focus and, you know, get to get to know the topic in a more detailed way, I think. But you also, I think... Um like kind of foster uh the fan base that you have based on the sort of content that you put out right like if you put out nothing but tweets then you're going to foster a fan base full of people who like to read tweets but if you put out nothing but books then you're going to foster a fan base who likes to read books right so i think it, it really you kind of get the fan base back versus the content that you put out right it's like an input output system there's no doubt in my mind. I, I started writing books um, and then at some point thought, well, a lot of people that were reading my books were like, man, why don't you do videos? Because I'd really, I learned better through video. And so I did a series of videos and uh, got a bunch of uh, accolades from people. They're like, oh, this is awesome. Thank you. And I got a bunch of negative feedback from people that are like, you know, all that time you were creating those videos, you could have written another book. And I really like books better. <laughs> <laughs> but then you have to ask yourself, right? Like, um, you have to start thinking like philosophically about what constitutes a good life for yourself. And it's like, it's a good life, something that everybody else thought I did really well in or something where I thought I imparted a lot of value on other people or where I did actually impart a lot of value on other people. Like there's so many questions to ask us to like, what even is a good use of time at the end, right? And there's one thing I've learned about content creation is that um, like you were saying before, uh, only a small amount of people are the ones that you'll ever hear from. Um, and I, yeah, your loudest audience are definitely not the majority is what I'm trying right. to say. Yeah. Right. And, and if you're doing this with the intent of, this being your revenue stream, which I, I think, and this is probably true both in music and in, at least in my case, where the, the the software I create is not my revenue stream, it's the content around it. And so you, then I think, at least in my case, I look at it and I'm like, well, how much work does it take to write a book versus how much money do I get? Um, and how much time and effort is it to create a video series versus how much money I get? And, um, yeah, in, in my particular case, I, I um, am pretty confident that it's more, there's better value to doing videos. It's, it's quicker and easier to create a video series than it is to write a book. Um, and you get roughly, in, at least in my observation, roughly the same amount of revenue out of either one of them. So then you might say, well, Rocky, why the hell do you keep writing books? Uh, and uh, And it's because... I am one of the people that prefer to read. I, I learn better by reading content than I do by, by watching somebody's slow rambling video. <laughs> so 
Definitely not me. I <laughs> don't learn well from reading at all, and I learn really well from watching things. Yeah, learning learning from reading is. I don't get it. I, I get stuck on like lines. Like I'll read one line and be like, "The fuck does that mean?" And then I'll like realize that it took me like having to read four or five more lines under it to like get the context of like the first line. Whereas when somebody's talking in a video, like I can't really stop them. They're just going to like keep talking. So I'll be like lost, lost, lost listening to them. And then all of a sudden they'll say something that like ties it all together. And I'll be like, see, it would have taken me so long to get to that point where they said that thing that tied it all together. Cause I would have just gotten stuck on the first line being like, what the fuck does this line mean? Yeah. I'm, I'm really in the middle of those two things. Like I, I find text useful. Um, but you know, I won't grasp it until I've I've read some stuff and I've watched some somebody explain it. You know, I, I kind of need both angles for it to really click. Uh, but especially with music, when I watch Bill uh, producing stuff, just watching what Bill does really really helps me to sort of grasp the the technique. And then it's just like, oh, now I understand it. But you know, if he'd written a few lines about how to do it, I would never have grasped it. Yeah, I think like different kinds of things are like that too. I feel like with coding, it makes a lot more sense to read about it, right? Because like literally the entire activity is text. So it's like, yeah, to... well, it is. But then there's there's a lot of little hidden bits and pieces in in coding that are not just memorizing text. There's a lot of tech tech sort of techniques and little tricks that you do, shortcuts and things like that, uh, where to find things in your development environment that you just then. It's very much like Ableton, you know, it's like all the shortcuts, all the kinds of things that you, that you do inside Ableton. Um, it's the same suite of, of things that you have inside a development environment that if you just didn't know they were there, you would never figure it out. And you just need to see somebody else doing those things before it makes sense sometimes. Yeah. And I think too, that I, I agree with that. And I also think that a lot of People on the outside look at coding or programming and they think, oh man, it's just all typey, typey, typey. When in reality, 90% of the time was spent in your head figuring out the problem. Right, and, like the logic and of like, it. Yeah, trying to organize all of, and then you do the typey, typey um, and, and you know, spend a bunch of time debugging. But, um, and, and certainly this is not true for everybody, right? Especially early in your career. You know, you put a lot of time into the actual coding part, but after you have done it for a long enough period of time that you've kind of mastered the coding, then at least in my experience, more and more of the time and, and the interesting parts happen in your head long before you bring your fingers down to the keyboard. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like kind of trying to figure out a logic puzzle or like a, just trying to simplify a really complicated problem or something like that to its basic elements or whatever. I think I'm. I might be the one, odd one out on this one. A lot of people say what you said, Rocky, but for me, it's kind of like my hands start moving and doing things before I actually work through the problem. Like I'll be, I'll be typing and just, just checking out this or that inside the development environment, and when I see something come up on the screen, like like some some code, that will trigger other thoughts that lead to other things, and then I'll get a refactoring recommendation and I'll follow that refactoring recommendation and then the code will start moving around and oftentimes I feel like I'm completely disengaged I'm not thinking about what I'm doing at all and the code just unfolds in front of me a lot of the time it's very it's very different I, I think everybody has a different 
feel like that's how I write music. It's like yeah. just trying exactly to generate some, uh, yeah, generate some stimulus that kind of like triggers parts of your brain to start being creative. Exactly the same thing. I find so that's what I from watching Bill and the way Bill creates music. That's kind of how I code, and that's why I've sort of I learned so well from what Bill does. It's just kind of like it's kind of instinctual. Like you you're you're watching something unfold instead of instead of pre-planning everything, and um, that's that's what how it tends to happen for me. I know that just flies against the grain of how most programmers think and work but it's very yeah it's interesting that you can do it that way right because like i was saying i feel like music's a little different in the sense that it it's not a thing that either works or doesn't whereas um you know code is that way so with with code i I find the best problem solving time is when i'm asleep so if i if i go to bed with a problem i won't think about it uh but in the morning uh I may not have thought about it even by the time I get to the computer, but I'll just start typing. I'll put my hands on the keyboard and the solution's there. I don't know where it came from. Somehow my subconscious has worked through it while I'm asleep. And I, I think that is play. super common. That happens to yeah. me all the time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, your brain is in its most like plastic state or whatever, right? When you're sleeping. Or the shower, <laughs> taking a shower will do it too. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I feel like using the brute force of your consciousness, your conscious mind, to solve a problem is sometimes not the best way. And sometimes um, the letting your subconscious just work through it while you're not focusing on it is often the problem solver. And then the hands just follow. So, and and it's kind of the same thing with music that I find as well. Nice. Well, I unfortunately have to uh, cut this conversation off because it's almost two and I have to bail at two. Um, but it was awesome chatting with you guys about this. I feel like we covered some some pretty interesting ground and I feel like definitely a lot of ground that, that my listener base won't be super familiar with. So yeah, I think it was really interesting. I appreciate you setting this up, Christian, and uh, like having the idea to have this conversation about open source software. That was amazing. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks heaps for your time, Rocky and Bill. Yeah, thank you for setting it up, Christian, and thank you for hosting, Bill. This was a lot of fun for me as well. Yeah, of course. Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded by Robert Fumo. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes, and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's Tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, Please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you. I don't want to